Imagine you're fresh out of Harvard Business School and heading to a financial consulting job with a top investment banking company. Now, consider that two of your infant children are diagnosed with an ultra-rare neuromuscular condition, a disease for which there are no approved treatments and an unimaginable prognosis that gives your children only months to live. What do you do then? If you're John Crowley, you make the only logical choice. Well, maybe not logical, but certainly courageous. You put your family first, your career on hold, and decide to create a biotech company that will research this disease and hopefully find a treatment for your kids. What? Are you kidding me? Hello, everyone. I'm Bob Coughlin, co-host of the podcast In Sickness, Men and the Culture of Caregiving, a monthly podcast where I'm joined by my co-host and fellow caregiver, Paul Kidwell. On each podcast, Paul and I will talk with men who will share these incredible stories of compassion and dedication to care partners, to family, friends, and loved ones. Bob, our guest today is someone very familiar to the biotech community. John Crowley. John, as you know, is a former Genzyme executive and protege of the late Henry Tremere, founding CEO of Amicus Therapeutics, and most recently, the incoming CEO of the Bio Organization. His career path would be a story in itself, but what he did for his children is one of the most remarkable sagas of a parent's resolve. Paul, you and I have been in this business for many years and understand what it takes to start a company and succeed in the biotech industry. John had no background in biotech, but what he did have was the motivation to save his kids' lives and refuse to watch them die. So he quit his financial consulting job and invested the family nest egg so he could research the disease and find a cure. And not ever realizing the challenges he was about to endure or the ripples of hope he would send around the globe. John Crowley, welcome to our podcast. John, let's set the stage for our listeners. You just finished business school at Harvard, began working for a financial consulting firm on the West Coast out in California, and then all of a sudden, your life and the life of your family changed, and it changed forever. If you could, describe that time for us, please. So I have to say, first of all, thank you for having me on. And, and I'm just thrilled that, that you and Bob are doing this. I think it's going to be such important learnings for so many people, just sharing life's lessons for all of us on this shared journey. For Eileen and I, our journey and story is, is familiar for so many people in this world of rare diseases, broadly in the field of healthcare and health challenges, in that when we first got the diagnosis for our children, I wasn't working on Wall Street. I was out in California. We were spending a year. You know, by that point, Megan, our, our second born, wasn't doing the things a then year old or so should be doing, you know, the pulling up in the crib and trying to take the first steps. And so we went from pediatrician to pediatrician to neurologist, from blood test to scan to muscle biopsy. And like so many families in this world, we got a diagnosis and it was a shock for a disease we had never heard of, Pompeii disease, a rare form of muscular dystrophy. And I remember asking the doctor, is it serious? And he said, yes, it's very serious. And he had never treated a child or even diagnosed a child with Pompeii. 
And he said, typically, they don't live to be even a couple of years old. And Megan was 15 months old. Our then seven-day-old son should also be tested because it's a recessive disorder. There's no history in our families. And I think how we felt was that a lot of emotions, certainly shock to begin with and grief. And we settled very quickly on determination, determined to learn everything we could about this disease and then to do whatever we could to meet people and to try to see if we can change that outcome. And I think, again, similar to so many people, it was the shock of, oh, wait a second, this isn't supposed to happen to us. This happens to other people. And that's just the nature of rare diseases broadly, but again, so many health challenges. And that's kind of how we came into this whole world of medicine now almost 26 years ago. So she hadn't developed her personality yet. The day she was born in Boston at Children's Hospital, she was tough and feisty coming out. I, <laughs> that's that's true. True. <laughs> Somebody should have known day one something wasn't right. But, you know, you're young parents and you moved from HMO to HMO when I was a student in business school. But that first day, she spent a few hours in the NICU because she wasn't breathing quite right. And then they cleared her and she left. But it was that fight from the beginning. And honestly, it was that fight that carried through. John, seeing that it is a rare disease, Pompeii disease, a lot of the folks that you talk about in the rare world, which all of us have talked to people in that space, a big challenge. I'd like to know a little bit more about the psychological warfare that you and Eileen were going through at the beginning, because it's so challenging to diagnose these disorders, especially when there wasn't really genetic screening and, and things like the advancements that we have today. I mean, was it the first doctor that was able to make this accurate diagnosis or, or were you referred to various specialists? What was that journey from concern to diagnosis? What, what was that like for you and Eileen? It was not a straightforward path, Bob. You know, back then when there no. was no genetic testing, it was simply something's not right. Either the parents, you know, for Eileen and I, or doctors would notice, you know, she's kind of sitting funny and again, just missing those milestones. And we figured, yeah, you know, all kids are different. And we were moving, right? We were finishing graduate school in Boston. Then we lived in yeah. New Jersey for a little bit. Then we lived in California. And so we went from doctor to doctor. There was no one doctor following her. And even then, again, it was you were, t you know, you were drawing blood and you were looking at CPK levels, seeing if something is off in the muscle. And Okay, it yeah. was, but it wasn't profoundly off like you'd see in Duchenne, for instance. And then you've got to go through a whole other battery of blood tests and scans. And then it, I remember Megan at about a, just before her first birthday, like the day before, had a deep muscle biopsy in her thigh that just cut out a chunk of muscle uh, which in uh, anybody, especially a little, you know, oh my goodness, little baby, yeah. just awful. And we've got a cute picture of her sitting on the sink with this big bandage on her leg. Our worst fear was that we'd get a diagnosis that there was something wrong with her muscles and she wouldn't be able to walk. Never did mm. we envision that it would be as devastating a diagnosis as it was. Our diagnosis from first signs, let's say, symptoms that we noticed to diagnosis was three, four, five months all in, which was pretty fast. We did have good doctors and, and honestly, because Megan had a more severe form of the disease, it just manifested more clearly. In adults, for instance, living with Pompeii and like many rare diseases, there's a spectrum of onset and symptoms from infancy through adulthood. In the adults, I've met adults who for 20 years were on a diagnostic odyssey or misdiagnosed with other rare forms of muscle disease. We're in a much better place. And that's something we've got to get profoundly better at is diagnosing as quickly as we can, particularly since there are more and more treatments and some diseases even have cures and hopefully we'll have many, many more of those. Mm -hmm. But we also understand how better 
for children, for instance, of what early intervention can do. Cystic fibrosis is such a wonderful yeah. example of early diagnosis. Maybe you don't treat immediately with the full battery of, of medicines available. Maybe you do, yeah. and, and, but that knowledge is power, and that's so important. And for our listeners, I have a child with cystic fibrosis. That's why John is, is referring to that. One other yeah. quick question on that, John. Did you ever think that you would learn as much about biology as you and Eileen did in those early no. years? No, I was awful. <laughs> I never really liked science. I never, ever wanted to be a doctor or any, you know, kids grow up. When I was young, I was going to be a cop because my dad was a cop. I saw Top Gun and was a plebe at the Naval Academy, and I was going to be an F-15 sure. pilot. Of course. He told me my eyes were too bad, so I had to go do something else in the service, which was wonderful and greatest honor of, of my life serving for sure. My organic chemistry final at the Naval Academy, <laughs> it was 100 questions, multiple choice, A through E, brutally difficult, famously difficult. I made it even more difficult. I still don't know if I screwed up the bubbles or if I was really that bad, but I got a night <laughs> 100. <laughs> That wasn't the highlight of my academic career, but no, I never thought we'd get deep into science. But what you find out, and, and you did with CF, right? You need yeah. to learn everything you can. And even yeah. when I started that first biotech company, I figured, well, I've got an MBA and a law degree, and I could do the business plans yeah. and try to raise the money and the strategy and PowerPoint and all that. And I realized like a week in that I didn't know what the scientists were talking about. And if I didn't know what they were talking about, I couldn't make the business plans and certainly wouldn't be credible to our early investors. So I immersed myself in our labs. I was kicked out frequently by the scientists for a, a number sure. of different reasons. But one thing I did do, and I didn't tell them this, but for a year, I, I hired graduate students at night to teach me biochemistry and biology and genetics. It helped a great deal, but it was a labor of love to learn, that's for sure. You feel it was a greater challenge because it was a rare disease and maybe there wasn't enough information out there for you to assimilate? It made it harder. We got Megan's diagnosis, Paul, on a Friday the 13th in March, mm -hmm. a long time ago, 1998, before Google even existed. You know what I did? I went to the library in the town we lived in and I took out like a dozen books and just started reading. It's kind of like the Google searches today, right? The more you look, the more scary it is. But yeah, it was hard. I didn't find any book that even described Pompe disease, talking about disabilities, talking about muscle disease, talking about diagnoses and this whole medical world that I knew very, very little of. It made it more challenging. And then there was a lot of misinformation, a lot that was misunderstood about the disease, particularly back then. And as you were going through this process, what was happening with Megan? Was her condition worsening? Were you getting any type of treatment for it? Yes, subtly and sometimes not so subtly, she was getting weaker every day. And then our son, Patrick, we had him tested within a month. He seemed so much stronger at birth, but we found out that when he was just a couple of months old then that he also had Pompeii. And as an autosomal recessive disorder, where Eileen and I are both silent carriers, there's a 25% chance that any of our children would inherit both copies of the, you know, the bad gene, let's call it. And so one in four that Megan had it and she had it and one in four that Patrick would have it. Within a month or so, we met a great doctor, Dr. Alfred Sloanum in New York. He said she's going to get very sick very quickly. Keep her strong, keep her weight on, put a feeding tube in. She was still eating and we put a feeding tube in, which at the time seemed like the end of the world, put a feeding tube in, hooking up a feeding pump at night. But it helped her. And when she did get a slight cold that turned to a pneumonia that almost killed her, Six months later, in the fall of 1998, 
it was, I think, a combination of great care and medicine, Megan's own strength and determination, and some of the steps we had taken to prepare her to be able to fight and survive. And then again, within six months, we went through it all over again with Patrick. So in the course of a year, we went from having seemingly healthy, normal children to two young children with feeding tubes on ventilators in wheelchairs. That was a pretty defining year in our lives, for sure. Hey, a little bit more about that year, John. Going back to the beginning, the prognosis is there. You know, Megan and Patrick are going to be dealing with Pompeii. Uh, you and Eileen have to start with the treatment options. What were the treatment options like back then, just so we can get context from then before we get into now? And how successful were those protocols? There were no treatment options. It was only palliative care. But I found an academic paper at a Duke University that had been just published a couple of weeks earlier. It showed that there is a naturally occurring animal model, turns out, of Pompeii disease in Japanese quail. And doctors at Duke had developed an enzyme replacement therapy, treated that quail, and the quail got stronger, actually was able to fly. I didn't understand 90% of what I, what I read in this academic paper by these brilliant researchers. But I remember waking Eileen up in the middle of the night and I'm, I'm trying to explain it all. And she's looking at me like I'm nuts. <laughs> she asked, what does this mean? And I remember I, I kind of was like two or three in the morning. I kind of paused and I said, I, I think Eileen, I think it means there's some hope. From then on, it was a quest to meet these doctors. Turns out there were other researchers working on a similar strategy in Rotterdam and the Netherlands, but not much more. Talk a little bit more about that because I just got excited, right? And I, what I'm excited about is that aha moment where the quail could fly. Is that the moment where you said, okay, these existing protocols aren't going to do it? When did you and say to Eileen, you know something? I'm going to take the bull by the horns. I'm going to start a biotech company <laughs> and I want to develop medicines that are going to treat my children. The quail was the moment of relief after a very long day where we were told that there was no hope. There was no research. There was no medicine go home and enjoy the time we had, period. And that told me that there were doctors working and researchers working on it. And maybe if they can cure an animal, maybe they can treat my children. So that was the aha moment to provide some measure of hope. And everybody needs hope, right? Even if it's tempered oh, yeah. with a lot of reality. I had no idea how hard it would be to develop that therapy. But it started us into this world of medicine and wanting to talk to anyone and everyone who knew anything about this disease. And it was really then two years later where we found a number of researchers. I found one who was a brilliant glycobiologist, which means he was working on the carbohydrates attached to these proteins, which are essential if you're going to develop a therapy to be infused into somebody, you know, a needle into the arm. If you're going to get that medicine into muscle absorbed to replace the missing enzyme, to break down the substance that was building up, to strengthen the muscles ultimately. It needed to be targeted through these carbohydrates. We raised money. We had started a foundation. We were raising awareness, but it was moving slow. And we knew that time was as great an enemy as this mistake of nature. And so mm -hmm. that sent that great sense of urgency paired with trying to live life as a family all along the way. That moment, that epiphany, if you will, was in the two years later in the spring in March of 2000, where... I knew I couldn't do what we needed to do with a small not-for-profit, that we had to take the bull by the horns. That was the time I realized that leaving my then secure job with wonderful people at a great company at Bristol-Myers Squibb would be necessary. And Paul, you were kind to describe that early on, Eileen and I took our nest egg to invent. We didn't have any eggs. We had a small nest with a big mortgage. <laughs> 
but it had a little <laughs> bit of equity in it. I took a home equity loan and credit card advances. I still had over $100,000 in student loans and a negative net worth, but we helped to start this little company to catalyze the research, to try to move it forward. In doing that, I wrestled with it. We're giving up a good job. In 18 months after COBRA, we're giving up our health insurance. Forget what it would do to my resume career or my, you know, I'd have to travel all the time. I'd miss a lot of the kids growing up. But that was a time Eileen and I had a long conversation. And, you know, she said, you go do what we need to have done and I'll take care of the kids. And I, John, would be there as much as I could. But it was a sacrifice for all of us. If you're not a caregiver, maybe you don't understand this, but every day a caregiver is making decisions and they are being made by maybe you as a person or a husband or a spouse or a parent. And in your case, you're making sort of career decisions to establish this biotech company that will hopefully develop some medicines for your children. How do you triage person and the business person? Going into it even, Paul, I, I asked some of my friends, my classmates from business school, one of whom was a banker in biotech, should I do this? Most people said no, because I would miss too much of the link. It probably wasn't going to succeed. So I'd sacrifice spending time with the kids off on the low likelihood of success of developing a therapy to save them. And I would have more regrets about that than not having tried. And others even said just very pragmatically, nobody's going to invest in a company where the father has kids with this disease. I ended up not listening to most of them and kind of went with my gut. I laid out a spreadsheet of pros and cons, and there were way more cons than pros. Part of it comes back to what Eileen said, just do it. So sometimes we have mm -hmm. a tendency to overthink these things, and sometimes you do. You just do have to go with your gut and your emotion, and I did that. I'm glad we did, but it's what launched us into this whole world of medicine and research and caregiving. What would the John Crowley of today, who spent the last couple decades successfully navigating the drug development process, tell the John Crowley, the neophyte biotech entrepreneur who you were just talking about when he came to you for advice? Like how crazy would you have thought him to be? I probably <laughs> would have told him to just chill a little. It was so intense. And yeah, the business was hard and sometimes family life was very hard. You know, you guys are at this point in life too. You're caring for kids with disabilities, special needs, health challenges. There's so much we don't realize when we're younger. And unfortunately, it's kind of the nature of life, right? That we have to suffer our way to some measure of wisdom. And mm -hmm. I don't know another way. It wasn't like it wasn't written. You know, the Bible, other, there's lots of really great books that tell you how to live life that we don't always mm -hmm. absorb very, we're young. So I think some of them are just lessons learned along the way. I, I think the other two, and this is particularly important when you have children with very severe health challenges, you know, whether it's a cancer, rare disease, where you're facing death. But even in those times too, particularly for children with disabilities, you have to realize, and maybe one of the lessons I would have given my younger self is that it's a marathon, not a sprint. I woke up every day back then. What can I get done in that day? I was sleeping three, four, five hours a night and traveling constantly. And because every day was so precious. And maybe I'm glad I did it. The other thing too, I knew nothing about drug development. I think now I know a, a fair amount, again, having suffered my way to this learning. I don't know that I would have changed it because I think if calmer, more pragmatic John were doing that 25 years ago, I wouldn't have taken the risks that I did. And maybe we would have been successful, but it would have been too late. Yeah. Maybe there's a reason we do things while we're young, right? I think of the things I did in the military when I was young, 
that I look at now, I'm like, I was nuts, man. I would never do that. Yeah. I'm not going up that rope. Kidding me? When you were confronted with all these decisions you needed to make, you mentioned an investment banker in the, in the industry who was someone that you reached out to. Were there any others yeah. that you knew or came into your life through this process that you were uh, getting advice from? Oh, yeah, so many. I mean, I think it's so many people in my life, our family's lives that we never would have known, never would have even met if it wasn't yeah. for this direction our lives took or were forced to take, frankly, in, including both of you guys, maybe. I don't know that I would yeah. have gone into biotechnology, right? When I, like I said, when I was a kid for, I don't know how many years, I dressed up as a cop on Halloween. That's what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I never dressed up as a biotech entrepreneur as a kid. So this wasn't like a lifelong yeah. dream. Yes, there've been so many people, countless family, friends, mentors along the way that have helped guide us on this path. And to all of those people, I am greatly and forever indebted. You know, to that note, uh, John, you've been a great mentor to me. And when I first was presented with having a child that had a fatal genetic illness, you're a person that I reached out because someone who I was leaning on was Henry Tamir from Genzyme. And Henry said, you got to talk to John Crowley. He didn't tell me I should. He said, do it like right now. And, you know, I know that Henry played a role in your life. What was your initial assessment of Henry? Henry was great. I first met Henry at a biotech conference, the Laguna conference. And I remember going up to him and he was kind of holding court in the front of the room. And I remember going up, introducing myself and saying, I'm CEO of the new companies. And he was you know, very polite, and, but you know, he's getting bombarded left and right. And then uh, he said, oh, good. Yes. And you know, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to really spend some time with you. That'd be wonderful. And then he turned, he goes, wait, John, you have the children with Pompeii. I said, yes. He goes, please sit down. And we spent an hour together and he was just wonderful. And then we kept in touch. And then we negotiated the, the sale of my company to Genzyme. And he's a tough negotiator, right? I remember we had a really tough meeting. We had a ridiculous view of our value and and he was so thoughtful and so patient-centered, but he could be tough, right? We were in a meeting and and we just couldn't reach an agreement on the price for our shareholders for our small little company. It was a lot of money. He said, well, I I just don't think we're going to be able to reach terms today. And I said, well, I don't think so. I said, you know, we're going to have to keep pressing forward. I said, but if we keep pressing forward, we're only going to become more and more expensive and someday you're not going to be able to afford us, which is something I probably shouldn't have said as a 31-year-old CEO to Henry in the negotiation. And I'll never forget, he looked across the table and smiled. He said, we'll always be able to afford you. <laughs> <laughs> that is- he reached an agreement and he paid a lot more than I ever thought. I was right. In more time, we'd be more valuable. And he was right. In more time, he could still afford yeah. it. How important was that interaction in that Genzyme chapter? Oh, it was essential. After we started that small company and the home equity loan and the credit card advances and some angel money we raised and then some venture capital money, it all happened so fast. From start mm-hmm. to sale of the company was 18 months. From a handful of us who started wow. it to 120 employees in 18 months. An amount of luck, but an awful lot of great science, termination, hard work. We worked seven days a week. And there was no time off. We realized, though, that we needed the horsepower of much larger organization to carry it forward. We needed a lot more money. We needed manufacturing capabilities and facilities. I needed global clinical expertise to begin clinical studies. All the while, our kids were getting sicker and weaker and time mm. was pressing on. So I realized that you know we needed to enter into some discussions for a partnership or a sale. I had a choice in the spring of 2001 either partner with Genentech, the original biotech company, incredible science, 
they were going to buy 20% of our company, do a 50-50 partnership to develop our Pompeii program and others, or I could be acquired by Henry for over $100 million. I thought long and hard about it and realized that at the end of the day, this was so poor to Genzyme and so poor to Henry that it would have to succeed. And that when the program and science stumbled, which it did, that they would have to mm -hmm. find a way forward, that it would become Genzyme's largest, most expensive, most important development program ever. And it did. And because of that, realizing Henry's passion, that was the decision to sell, but it meant giving up our baby. And I went to work for yep. Henry for a little over a year. Henry and I always got along terrific. There were a lot of candid conversations. It was hard navigating the organization. There was a lot of tension, mistakes I made, and maybe others would have done differently as well. But ultimately, we did end up getting our children treated. Megan and Patrick were the 27th and 28th children to enroll in a clinical study. Within months, we saw that it was the, the enlargement of their hearts, the cardiac muscle, their left side of their heart was three times normal size. And they were within months of passing away. And within mm -hmm. three months, with this every other week infusion, enzyme replacement therapy, their hearts went back to normal size. This is a tough industry. Henry once told me that no matter how many brilliant scientists we hire, no matter how much billions of dollars we raise, no matter how many great manufacturing facilities and research facilities we build, almost everything we try doesn't work. But when it does work, it's probably the best job you could ever have. And he was right. You know, that's part of what I hope to carry forward in, in my new role as the CEO of our industry organization to help create dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands more of these new biotechnology companies that are going to carry these great new technologies, most of which in the decades to come have yet to be invented mm -hmm. and to break down barriers to great science, but also to access to ensure that everybody who needs a medicine has access to it. And that includes the education that we need across society broadly. So it's yeah. grounded in a lot of our experiences over more than a quarter of a century. And Henry played such an important role for us and for so many. Yeah, we would actually love to hear about what your next endeavor is. So after the first biotech company that we sold to Genzyme and the kids were treated and you know, went on to get a medicine developed, I realized that that first generation medicine was a good start. It was a helpful first treatment, but the effects tend to wane after a year or two. Patients tend to plateau in improvements and then slowly the kind of the inexorable decline of the muscle disease continues. And I saw that and realized that we needed to go back to the drawing board with potentially better treatments. Along the way, I also realized beyond Pompeii that, you know, there are thousands now thought to be more than 10,000 rare diseases, very, very few of which have any treatments. And so I wanted to start a company and I looked to, you know, Henry and, and Genzyme as a model. Biomarin was just starting another great model, a company in the rare diseases that could be enduring a sustainable business with a big vision. And so we started our company Amicus Therapeutics and Amicus, uh, the Latin word for friend. We wanted to be the most patient-focused, patient-friendly company in the industry. There's a lot of practices and principles we put into effect to become that company. From my coming on board as CEO of that early startup in January of 2005, now having multiple medicines approved for Fabre disease and next-generation therapy, for Pompeii disease, in a wonderful team. We've grown Amicus now to be more than 500 employees in several dozen countries around the world. I stepped out of the CEO role in the summer of 2022 
and handed the reins over to my longtime friend and business partner, Bradley Campbell. And Bradley has continued to evolve into being an incredible CEO at Amicus. And Amicus continues to grow and thrive. And I've been blessed to serve as executive chairman of the company now for more than a year and a half. But I realized how much more we need to do in the industry, how many more treatments and cures we need. Through my involvement as a board member at Bio, I was presented the opportunity to become the full-time president and CEO of Bio, the biotechnology innovation organization. It's our industry trade group representing more than 1,200 biotech companies, most of which develop medicines, vaccines, therapeutics. We range from the largest pharmaceutical companies to, and most of our members are emerging companies down to companies, you know, that we were like we were a handful of entrepreneurs. And so I'm excited to take the reins. I'll begin on March 4th as the president and CEO of Bio. We've got a, a wonderful team in Washington, D.C., more than 150 team members at the organization itself. We obviously, for many of you know, we put on a tremendous conference every year called Bio. Mm -hmm. This year, in 2024, it's in San Diego. It'll come back to Boston in 2025. And we've got a really big and bold vision for the industry organization to be the champion for science, for patients, for caregivers, for the entire ecosystem that's necessary to make great medicines. So it's something I'm usually excited about, and that's kind of the next chapter in this journey, or, or maybe a, a second book in this journey, I suppose. John, no one's more excited that you're taking over the helmet bio than I am, so thank you. Eileen and the kids are more excited than you because they're gonna get me out of the house. <laughs> No, that's not true. They love having you. Oh, around. you'd be amazed. <laughs> and we're so pumped up about the direction and what you're talking about bio. And bio's done an amazing job over the last decade or so by putting the patient in the middle of the story. And I think, yes. you know, being patient driven is something that our industry continues to strive for excellence in because it's all about the patients. But you did talk about the caregiver. We're focusing on caregivers. How important is the caregiver to the biotech industry? And what is it that we can do to engage caregivers more? It's essential. And, and of course, you can define caregiver any number of ways. You're sure. a caregiver, Bob. I am. Our families, our wives, our siblings, cousins. You know, Megan had young cousins her age who learned to help suction her mouth and then suction her trach. And a couple of them are now nurses. One just became a doctor. They're caregivers on a more extended basis now, helping so many others as well. Caregivers are essential. And that's something I want to be able to do at Bio is to enhance what we do in storytelling, to tell the human side of healthcare. You know, we've been blessed, Bob, right? We have treatments for Pompeii and mm -hmm. for cystic fibrosis. So many of these mm -hmm. diseases don't. We're going to tell stories of where medicine and entrepreneurs and biotech and something that could probably only uniquely happen in America, where that's been successful. It's great to tell those stories. It's very inspiring to hear the drama and the journey along the way. We're going to tell a lot of stories of, of people in need today. We're going to tell stories of people who don't even know that they need hope, people yet to be diagnosed, children yet to be born, whose parents are going to go through what we went through, sitting down with a doctor and a caregiver and a social worker and getting a diagnosis. And what's not acceptable is that today, and certainly in the months and years ahead, for them to do what we had to go through years ago and, and get a diagnosis and be told there's nothing that can be done. There's mm. too much great science out there, right? And that, that's just not acceptable anymore. So how do we break down those barriers and putting the caregivers side by side 
And for us, you know, yes, it's our family members, extended family members. It's been teachers in school. It's been aides. It's been physical therapists, nurses who've helped us so much over the years. Everybody in different ways at different times becomes a caregiver. Many of us are learning that as our parents age as well, that, you know, we're caregivers yet again to senior citizens, even, even God bless them, people healthy who are growing mm -hmm. old, who just have the, the challenges of growing old, let alone people struggling with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or cancer. We're all caregivers at different times, and that's going to have to be part of what's at the center side by side with patients. Because like we're all caregivers or will be caregivers to different degrees and at different times, we're all patients or are going to be patients as well. And I guess maybe that means that we all just have this great connectivity of, of being human beings. John, this is an absolutely fabulous to listen to your story. I don't think you, you know, but you, you sort of establish a very, very high bar for a caregiver that we all aspire to. Your story still resonates very strongly throughout the entire industry and also within the caregiving groups. So we want to just thank you for helping us launch our podcast today. Before we leave, I do have one final question, and that's how are the children? What's their status these days? Megan is now 27. Patrick on March 6th will turn 26. They're doing well with that first medicine that saved their lives, that extended, enhanced their lives, gave us time, time together as a family, but also time for me as an entrepreneur and innovator and our whole team to go back to the drawing board and think about what's next. And we were thrilled last year at, at Amicus and in the community to see that we were able to get our medicine. We call our enzyme replacement therapy, Pombility, together with uh, Opfolda approved in Europe and in the United States. And it's a wonderful new treatment option for people living with Pompeii. And for our children, Megan out of high school went to South Bend, Indiana. And Megan, even with all of her disabilities, spent every night in her dorm at Ryan Hall. And Megan graduated in 2019 from Notre Dame with a double major, mm -hmm. went on to get a master's in social work from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Spent a year with the social work team in the middle school in Princeton, New Jersey, where she attended. In fact, working with the same caregivers and, and social workers who supported her many years ago in middle school. And Megan now works for the Make-A-Wish Foundation of New Jersey. She is the, the assistant director of mission integration at the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And Patrick works in a, a flower shop called Vaseful Flowers in New Jersey. It's staffed mostly by people living with disabilities, run by a wonderful organization called Community Options. The kids are in a good place. And our older son, John, who I'd mentioned, lives with high-functioning autism. John ended up uh, during COVID, one of Megan's nurses quarantined with us, and she came back from graduate school. Uh, that was almost four years ago, Amanda. And... <laughs> Say uh, Amanda is, is, is still with us because she and John ended up striking up a friendship and then a love and ended up getting married. And we are now grandparents and have a little granddaughter, Stella, who's 19 months old. You know, I think for us, you want for your children what all parents want. You want them to be happy, safe and fulfilled. And I think they are. Again, and thank you both for having me on in this inaugural episode of your podcast and wish you both much luck here. I think you're going to touch and affect many lives. So thank you for having me. When John Crowley received his children's diagnosis of Pompeii disease, he thought of one thing. 
What do I need to do to make this situation better and save the lives of two of the most precious people in my life? He didn't stop to consider if caring for his kids was appropriate, fit his gender norm, or something he would allow his wife to do. He saw the need and reacted the only way he knew appropriate. The stereotypical caregiver today is still the middle-aged woman usually caring for a parent. But that's changing with more and more men joining the ranks of caregiving all the time. And I'm pleased to say they do it with an unflinching commitment of compassion and dedication without skipping a beat. Like John Crowley, millions of men are responding to a situation where they can help make a difference and just do it. Like our female counterparts have done without the expectation of a reward or even thanks for a job well done, it's a well-worn path that men are inheriting. One that we accept willingly and with gratitude for the many lessons learned along the way from countless selfless women caregivers. We know we are standing on the shoulders of giants and hope we measure up. We are delighted at the prospect of bringing our podcast to you and the dramatic narratives of the men we will be featuring. As the title says, it is the culture of care and compassion where we continue to find ourselves wrapped up in the needs of others, not a job or a calling, but a culture. And like any culture, those men involved find themselves at the crossroads of humanity, heart, and history. <laughs>